Ooh, bubs. Today's episode is the best there is at what it does. Getting us hyped up for Wolverine. Smells like an interview. Welcome to the Ex-Wife Podcast. I'm Alicia. And I'm Justin. And I'm Ben Percy. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Yeah, awesome. Exciting. Welcome to the show, Ben. We have with us today on the Ex-Wife Podcast, writer of short stories, novels, podcasts, screenplays, and comics, Benjamin Percy. Welcome to the show. Excited to be here. We are thrilled to have you. We have so many questions. Hit me. Um, but before Flash we get back into, away. <laughs> before we get into all of that, how are you doing? How's things going? Things are good. I mean, it's the holiday season, which, you know, is supposed to fill your heart with gingerbread and, and, uh, and mistletoe and all that happy crappy. Uh, but it also comes with a share of stress. So just, you know, juggling all the commitments that come at this time of year and, and uh, frantically doing some last minute shopping. Oh, yeah, same. It's that crunch time. Now's yeah. the time. I need to, you know, get some, get some uh, prime deliveries of coal on my doorstep ASAP. <laughs> you need them or for yourself or to pass out. Yeah. Just to hand out to everybody. Yeah. You get coal. And you that's all. That's all ever, anybody's getting these days from the headlines. Anyway. Just yeah. A big dump of coal. <laughs> Accurate. And you're, you're in a snowy area. I'm in a snowy area. Thankfully. I mean, my my icy heart melts whenever it gets over 70 degrees. So I, you know, sought out the coldest corner of this country, Minnesota, and uh, which, you know, we sometimes refer to as Hoth. Uh, but we had a weird situation where we, you know, got a foot of snow dumped on us about a week ago. Great. Perfect. And then on Monday, this insane thing happened. It's unprecedented, 50 degrees, 55 degrees, 57 degrees, you know, is total uh, climate whiplash. And so with that comes like changing pressure systems and this massive tornado front came blasting through. And, and uh, you know, we got spare, a few trees went down. Uh, we got spared from the worst of it, though. And, you know, trees, trees coming down in the vicinity is is always a good thing for me because then I get to an excuse to rev up the chainsaw. But aside from that, what I was really panicked about was like, no white Christmas, no white Christmas in Minnesota, impossible. Uh, we can't have it. We can't. Yeah, we've been we've been hitting. I think it was sixty one the other day. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, uh, but you know, uh, another cold front came through, and now it's all crystalline outside. And the oh, day, the jealous. Day saved. If it if it was snowing here on christmas that would make my day but we don't get white christmases as often over here in only anymore. only if you're a hallmark movie do you get it <laughs> it's in rhode island right yeah 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 so we're in rhode island we actually saw on your wikipedia page that you've spent some time in rhode island in your life do you have any right. fond memories or or reasons why you're not coming back to rhode island any, anything i would love to come i would love to come back to rhode island i you know lived there for four years went to brown and uh, had a great experience. And, you know, those those east side pockets are calling my name. I have to get back to the hill just to smash a few of those into my mouth and maybe pay a visit to the silver truck if it's still roaming the streets. And, oh, my goodness. And, and, uh, and, and yeah, the beach is out there, too. Oh, yeah. Really lovely. Yeah. Um, and actually, I see that you're are you wearing a Wu-Tang shirt. 
Oh, oh, it's a, it's a, oh okay, it's never mind. <laughs> but but yeah, I actually the, re I, the reason I asked that is because I uh, that was a concert that I saw um, in, in Providence, the first like legit concert I ever went to as a freshman. Oh, that's concert. awesome! Amazing. Was but no, you're a nerd and you're wearing a Phoenix T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I have yeah. a Wolverine T-shirt on. Yeah, right. I'm proud of you. Thank you. I figured it, it combined one of my favorite stories and one of my favorite groups. So uh, I got to go with it. Got to go with gotta, it. Got to have it. Well, we wanted to talk about you as a writer. And when did you know that that was what you wanted to do, that that's your calling in life? So I you know, grew up in a rural area of Oregon. A lot of my neighbors, I mean, I moved around a lot, but I'd say the majority of my childhood was spent in the central Oregon area. You know, Sage Flats and my neighbors were ranchers and it never occurred to me, despite having like a voracious appetite for books and comics, that I could actually do this for a living. Um, I had instead the very practical, uh, you know, dream of being an archaeologist akin to Indiana Jones. Amazing. Uh, I was already living a, you know, a fantasy life then. Uh, I went on several digs, though, as a high schooler, I joined up one summer at the University of Oregon and another summer with the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry and did some digs and, you know, eventually pitched myself sort of to colleges as, you know, that was my thing. And I had a Indiana Jones fedora and a leather satchel full of bones and maps and described so an archaeology magazine from fifth grade onward. But I eventually came to discover like there was no lost Ark of the Covenant waiting out there for me. Uh, uh, there were, you know, I, on some of these digs, like the highlight of the day was discovering a bone chip. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I just, the dream sort of dissolved and I had a bit of an existential crisis, which a lot of people do when they're in their early 20s. And I retreated to the wilderness. I went to work for uh, Glacier National Park. I wasn't sure I was going to continue actually going to college. Um, and I worked as a gardener at Glacier, which I know is kind of a weird thing, but I was a gardener at Many Glacier Lodge. And, and when I was there, I was keeping a journal for the first time in my life, writing down, you know, images, writing down thoughts, writing down poems, song snippets and such. And there was a waitress at the lodge who I had a fancy for. And I would start, I started slipping um, notes and, and poems into our mailbox. And, and one day we were watching the sunset over the Rockies and she said, you should be a writer. And I said, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and, and reader, I married her. Um, oh. oh, that's a beautiful story. I love that so much. So I ended up going back to college and, and she actually moved out there um, to be with me and, and yeah, chased the dream. Um, and, you know, when I first stepped into a creative writing classroom, I felt a bit at odds with the sensibility in that I grew up on genre fiction. I grew up on, you know, vampires and dragons, and robots with laser eyes and barbarians with woolly underpants. <laughs> I walked into that creative writing workshop ready to bring that to the page and was promptly told by my professor that there would be no genre fiction. Oh, no. Uh, 
And I put up my hand and said, well, what do you mean by this whole no genre thing? And he settled his dead gaze upon me. He looked like a mannequin, like a dead expression, no hair. And he said, I mean, no dragons, no vampires, no robots <laughs> with laser eyes, and especially no barbarians with woolly underpants. Was, was he your was your real life Professor Snape? <laughs> yeah, he sounds like <laughs> Professor Snape. And I, I, I sat there, and, and I guess you got maybe some of the viewers don't know this, but Hogwarts is actually located in Rhode Island. Um, yeah, which is why I went to school. And, and, and I sat there for a second, and they were very earnestly asked, but what else is there? <laughs> because I hadn't, I hadn't read a lot of the stuff that was about to be assigned to me. I hadn't read James Baldwin. I hadn't read Leslie Silco or Alice Monroe or Raymond Carver or blah, blah, blah. I fell in love with literary fiction thereafter because that was all that was taught and all that I was allowed to write for the next four or five years, but I never fell out of love with genre fiction. I guess you could say that my sensibility is sort of somewhere in between as a result of that, as a writer. Interesting. Well, that leads me perfectly to my next question, which is what are your favorite kinds of stories to write? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess when you look at somebody like Margaret Atwood or Susanna Clark, if you're not familiar with Susanna Clark, she's not, very prolific, but like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is freaking fantastic, um, as is her latest novel. And uh, you look at Dennis Lane, you look at Peter Straub, you look at Octavia Butler, or Neil Gaiman, and they kind of they occupy, let's say, the ghost lands between literary and genre fiction, which is where I kind of like to be, uh, neither fish nor fowl, both literary and genre. If you think about, you know, the extremes of each, like if you go into a bookstore and you crouch down and you push past the cobwebs, you know, past Tattoo Quarterly and Cat Fancy Magazine, like behind them, you might locate a few literary journals. And if you paw through those literary journals and just put your finger on any random story, it might go something like this. You know, somebody is uh, setting a pot, a kettle on the stove to boil. And then they walk over to the window and they stare at a roiling bank of clouds in the distance. The teapot begins to whistle. They steep the tea leaves. They return to the window and now the roiling bank of clouds is closer. They have an epiphany. The end, right? The end. So, nothing happens. <laughs> like we make fun of the worst of literary fiction, nothing happens. But literary fiction never forgets, right? That those characters are so three-dimensional, you might know them better than your neighbors, your friends, your family even. They live on inside you. The, the language is so exquisite that you could like pluck a sentence from the page and frame it and hang it on the wall and invite people over and be like, look at that sentence. <laughs> Damn. Uh, sentence. You know, the metaphors glow. The streams are subterranean. That's what literary fiction is great at. But let's make fun of genre fiction for a second. <laughs> right, the worst of genre fiction. The prose is pedestrian. The plots are formulaic. The characters are paper thin, more types than, than actual, you know, beans and, and, 
And the thing about genre fiction, though, is that it never forgets that the most essential question, the most, the reason that most people come to story is to figure out what happens next. Mm -hmm. and, and genre fiction always has all six cylinders blazing when it comes to that question. So, but if you look at those authors that I mentioned before, they, they manage to do both, right? They write stories that are artfully told and compulsively readable. Um, and that is the case if you look at somebody like Cormac McCarthy, like where does he belong in a bookstore? You know, the road is post-apocalyptic. Child of God is horror. All the pretty horses is a Western. No country for old men is crime. Sutry is literature with a capital L. It doesn't matter. The taxonomy doesn't matter. Uh, and, and I guess that's how I approach writing. Not just as something that sprawls, you know, my work sprawls across genres, but also across mediums in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you got us on the segues to the next question. That was great to just bring up the idea of the fact that you are writing for different types of production, different mediums themselves. Is there a difference when you're approaching a comic versus a novel? You know, I, I learn, the, one of the reasons I love writing across mediums is that I learn new techniques for storytelling. Mm. Um, let's say I'm writing a podcast. You know, I've written three now. Mm -hmm. Wolverine the Long Night, Wolverine the Lost Trail, the sequel to that, and then the recent Wastelanders, uh, Old Man Star-Lord, which is a Guardians of the Galaxy podcast. And in that case, right, let's take a visual medium, comics, and translate it into audio. Mm. I can't begin to tell you how many complications arise instantly from that in terms of the way you're used to telling stories, right? If you're watching a movie or a TV show or reading a comic, you are instantly fed information through your eyeballs as to what time of day is it? Yeah. What season is it? Where are people? Stuff that doesn't need to be communicated in the prose, in the narrative caps or in the, in the dialogue or whatever, because you already got it, right? Yep. You yeah, soaked it up in a, in a millisecond. But let's say you're listening to something instead. Like, how can you explain to people where, when, who, what, all of that uh, without having like jarringly ugly expository dialogue. Like, here we are on the 4th of November walking down the street on this cold rainy day and up ahead I see the rundown mansion of old man Hubbard where some say on this very day 20 years ago a murder occurred, and lo, do you hear a noise beyond that shattered window? You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, there's that. Like, how do you do it authentically? And I came up with this idea for like, okay, I listened to S-Town, I listened to Serial, other popular podcasts at the time, and, and those are nonfiction, but I stole techniques from them where it's like, there's journalists asking questions. Mm -hmm. So I had the point of view in, in the, those podcasts was purely in the federal agents, you know, who are investigating these murders. And so they have a reason to be like, okay, what happened yesterday? Mm. And the guy can be like, well, I went down to the docks. And what time were you there? And they tell you the time, 4.30, about when I get on my crabbing boat usually. And it was really foggy that day. And okay, what happened next? Well, I was going along, you know, through the chop, headed out into the sound when we came upon a boat appeared to be abandoned you know it was glowing and floating and bobbing there and nobody responded to our hail so i crawled out 
got onto the deck and that's when you start to like have like the the past seep into the present you hear the waves slapping in the audio and you hear the squeak of boots in the deck and somebody opens up the 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 hinge of uh you know the hold and looks down clicks on a flashlight and gasps because they see you know a body down below with the ice and the fish and and, and so you know come up with ways to cheat the storytelling to tell the same kind of story in a different way or how do you write a fight scene in audio without completely confusing people and so on and so on and so forth so that's an example of like no matter what the medium is i'm learning new techniques and i love that and 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 i love having hurdles mm. like higher and higher hurdles that i have to cross or otherwise writing wouldn't be any fun when it comes to comics i think comics have made me a better novelist um and that's in part because they are so to swing back to your original question because they are so strict in their design like your standard comic is five to six, seven scenes it is 20 pages uh, it has an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, and a D plot. And the B plot of one issue becomes the A plot of the next. And the C plot becomes the B plot and so on. Um, and, and there's usually a splash page in the first five pages. There's a splash page typically in the last two pages. Um, and that's just a few of the things, right? But if you, if you take that idea and, and then apply it to novels, right? Novels, you think, oh, I've got 700 pages or... 300 pages or 500 pages or whatever, you know, as a result of that, even though you know you should be doing multiple things at once, you should be writing towards character and theme and plot all at once. You sometimes don't do that because you have this wide open space and it doesn't feel so constrained. But sometimes those constraints can actually be inspiring and, and certainly make you more efficient, right? Uh, Terrence Hayes, the poet, talks about how the difference between writing uh, uh, free verse poetry versus writing form poetry, form poetry like a villanelle or a sonnet, uh, is that, you know, it's cool if you can break dance, but it's badass if you can break dance in a straight jacket. And I feel like comics is, writing comics is break dance in a straight jacket because of those constraints upon you. And, and there's other things, you know, to cull from comics as well that, I've, that have made me a better novelist. Like I look at the way in which villains operate. And if you're doing it right, you know, let's say you take the rogues gallery of Batman or something, because that's the best rogues gallery. You know, the, the villain should be an externalization of an internal struggle. That's how villains should operate, the antagonistic force in your story right so if it's a story about the joker the joker is an opposite of batman and most villains are either dark mirrors or opposites then the story is going to be about law and order versus chaos if it's a story about dr freeze it should be about bruce's emotional coldness if it's a story about two-face it should be a story about is Batman the mask and Bruce Wayne the man or is Bruce Wayne the mask and Batman the man? Mm. It's about Killer Croc. It should be about savagery animalism within Batman and so on, right? So all of those things should be evident as well in your novel. Uh, but sometimes people forget about that. The core wound is typically distilled very obviously in film as well. I mean, you don't have to go into superhero theatrics here to see it. Yes, the core wound of Batman is Crime Alley. We've seen that over and over again. But, you know, look at something like Sleepless in Seattle. It's the same sort of deal. 
opening shot of that is Tom Hanks and the son standing over the grave of their wife and mother respectively right and that core wound drives yeah. uh, the conflict of the story and, and anyways I could I mean I could go on for this for literally four hours as one of you know I think that there are there are differences but there are you know a lot of storytelling similarities especially if you're telling long form comics yeah, and I think that's such an interesting, like to talk about what you were mentioning earlier, just the idea of taking whatever your restrictions are or the constraints of that thing and seeing them as an opportunity to like invent, invent instead of as a restriction and and like learning from all the different genres. Like it's just so cool to hear you talk about how you layer those things together. And I think it can just apply to like all art forms really, or like your everyday life. So it's just an interesting concept yeah. to pull from everything that you're saying which is all yeah. so i've always been i mean everything in my career has been incremental you know i started off writing short stories mm-hmm. and and trying to figure out how to to master that form uh and and i haven't i'm not saying i've mastered it but i you know sort of came came to a point where it was more much more naturalistic and that i had studied enough and written enough that like okay i'm i'm moving beyond that now and i'm looking at novels and doing the same sort of thing you know, like a strenuous study uh, of novels as a reader, as a writer, and, and, you know, started to publish novels. And at the same time, I'm starting to write nonfiction for magazines like Esquire and, and GQ and Time. And, 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 then, and then I start to write comics and then I start to write podcasts and then I start to write film and, and TV screenplays. And like from each, I'm like, I'm just, you know, accumulating uh, a storytelling arsenal. Um, but it's not something that happens all at once. Something yeah. happens over decades. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- now that you have that assembled arsenal, how do you decide where a story idea goes? So if it's something that could live as a short story, maybe grow from there, is it something that you'd like to see as a as a comic arc or a graphic novel? Or is this a full range novel or novel series? Yeah, right. I mean, early on, it wasn't as evident to me. Um, For instance, I started pitching comics in 2009. And that was before I had a novel out. I had two short story collections published at that point. And I was writing for magazines, but I had no novel out. And a novel did publish in 2010. But the what happened around that time is I I started to build up sort of like these pitches. And one I was really excited about went out to Mark Doyle at Vertigo. And it was called Red Moon. And, you know, I put together like a 30-page Bible. There was going to be this a werewolf series that, in a way, bore more resemblance to the X-Men than it did Twilight. And that it was about xenophobia. You know, a certain segment of the population was infected, treated as a marginalized group. They were on a registry. They were forced to take drugs. Uh, and I tried to create like this scientific analog to the werewolf myth where it was a disease like mad cow disease, like chronic wasting disease that leapt out of the animal population and created these misfolded protein, proteins, these prions in a body. Um, and they created like enhanced adrenal reactions and such. Anyways, uh, the point is I put forward this pitch. I sent it to Vertigo and they promptly rejected it, um, probably smartly because I had no track record in comics. They're like, why are, we're not going to give you some like 30 issue original series when you haven't, you've never written a single issue of comics, dude. Um, 
but you know, it got me in the door in terms of communication. They're like, we like this idea, like stay in touch. Uh, but my agent was like, this idea is awesome. Write this as a novel. So I did, and it became my breakout book. Red Moon came out in 2013. I pitched it, you know, I took I pitched it and as an incomplete thing. Like mm-hmm. I had a few chapters, I had the Bible, I sold it based on that. It didn't come out until 20, 2013. But you know, that's an example of me being like, here's this story idea. And I thought it was one thing and it turned out to be another. Or like, here I am around 2013, uh, writing a screenplay for film and it was sent all around Hollywood and rejected by everybody. And then Mark Doyle, finally, so 2009 is when I started pitching Mark Doyle. 2014 is when I got my first like gig. It took that long, right? And my first gig was very auspicious. As a debut, I was very lucky to get uh, a two-issue arc, uh, a Batman story in Detective Comics. And I was paired up, too, with, you know, um, J.P. Leon, who's just, you know, the ultimate badass and very sadly died recently. Um, But, like, that story that I ended up publishing with DC was that failed screenplay. Wow. I just took the main character out and put Batman in. That's awesome. Now it's a Batman. Mark was like, hey, you got any ideas? I've got a two-issue vacancy. And I was like, well. And I didn't I didn't tell him. It was a fast Right. right. I, I looked like the idea a lot. He's like, oh, that's pretty badass. Let's do it. Um, so, you know, in other words, I see everything as, you know, there's always a turn. There's always a pivot. There's always a way to, like, steer out of the wreckage of rejection yeah um and that should be a lesson to everybody because you know if you're a writer if you're an artist of any sort you're going to hear no constantly mm-hmm. and you have to find ways of like listening to that rejection but also pivoting out of it yeah and uh but now i guess i'm at a point where i'm able to i guess have a better perspective on what i want something to be up front for instance I sold a TV show a few years ago and I sold it directly to stars and it was this crime show and it was about the oil fields in North Dakota and and I was super excited, put everything I had into it. And then another show about the exact same thing came out on ABC with Don Johnson and they, and they were like, and stars was like, well, they beat us. So your thing's canceled. Oh, damn. That's then. But the thing that killed me was not just that, is that they own the property. Mm. I sold it directly to them. And so that's made me very gun shy about Hollywood and the way I approach things. And that if I'm going to adapt something for Hollywood now, uh, I should say, if I'm going to do something for Hollywood now, it's always an adaptation because I want the thing to exist. Mm-hmm. So I will publish something as a short story or as a novel or as a comic series that I hope to make into a show or movie. Hmm. Uh, because then it belongs to me. Yeah, yeah. And then if it doesn't work out, it's still out in the world. Yeah. So an example of this is this new company called Neotext, which is run by John Schoenfelder, who's a Hollywood producer at Addictive Pictures. And they've made movies like uh, The Guest and You're Next. And anyways, he... Uh, has this great idea where he's like okay we're gonna do this from the ground up and we'll be a transmedia company where it's like i'm gonna hire you to write a short story 
and I'm going to hire an artist to illustrate this short story. And we're going to publish it and pay you both. And then we're going to go out and try to sell it to Hollywood, all under this one roof for you to adapt as a screenplay. That's cool. Right. I really like that dynamic. Yeah. And, and to your earlier stories about how it grew and changed into this other idea that that story continues to live in your mind and, and you add to it and you develop it and you find other ways that it can be applied that just keeps it within your control at the same time. Yep. I mean, yep. That's awesome. Yeah. I love yeah, it's a, it's a tricky sort of thing because, you know, the majority of things that are picked up by Hollywood, you might see, you know, writers say, oh, you know, this got optioned. And that, great, you know, take, take your money. It might be $4,000 or sometimes there's a big deal out there, you know, for a million bucks or whatever. But more often it's a little, just a little bit of money. Um, but you know what? Uh, there's a 99% chance your thing is not getting made. Mm. Um, don't get too excited because <laughs> Hollywood buys up a bunch of stuff and then doesn't develop it or they start to develop it and then give up on it or, mm. or whatever. So just knowing, having been in the trenches for long enough, I just I understand better how the game is played. Mm. Well, in the working with other artists in the collaborative mindset, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like for you to work with the different artists when you're writing comics and how that influences your storytelling? Yeah, and that's, you know, it's something I've, again, learned gradually over time. Um, mm -hmm. J.P. Leon, I mentioned, was the first artist I ever worked with. And I wasn't going to pretend to be an expert. I said, you know, I feel really lucky to be working with you. Um, can you please teach me how to be the best comics writer I can for an artist? Uh, at the same time, I was actively seeking out scripts from writers and artists. I said, send me the best script you've ever written to the writers. And I said, send me the best script you've ever drawn to the artists. Because I was curious to compare the two, yeah. what they thought. What JP Leon told me was that, you know, your, your artist is your first audience. Never forget that. He's like, don't worry so much about telling me what the angle is or whether it's a medium shot or any of that stuff. He's like, write it like a short story. Give me chunks of, you know, meaty prose that the, that the readers won't ever see. What you're trying to do for me is create atmosphere and emotion, he was saying, mm. so that I get swept up in the story and then I can bring those atmospherics, translate them to the, to the you know, readers uh, because the artist, you know, is your director, cinematographer in a way. Right, yeah. right. And they know best how to do that. Um, so, you know, whenever I work with artists long term, I try to get to know them. I ask what their wish lists are. I, you know, I want them to be collaborators because otherwise they'll leave or they won't bring their best work. They have to feel as invested as I do. Um, so, and I'm always writing for them, you know, doing the best I can with my prose. Uh, to sweep them away and, and you know you look at some comic strips and the writers are not doing this um, and that doesn't mean it doesn't always work but and sometimes they just get on the phone with people and talk talk things out mm -hmm. uh, but some of the comic scripts I look at are like crazy spare um, uh, so I guess maybe maybe I write too much I don't know but I, I'm doing the, the best I can to try to involve 
uh, the artist in, in, in this sort of like a, you know, emotionally complicit way. And like giving, giving you an example, you know, like Juan Ferreira, who I worked with on Green Arrow, that guy has crazy layouts, crazy layouts. Uh, so does Adam Kubert, like just mind boggling the way that they can just create new ways of seeing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things Juan liked to do was to create almost like MC Escher situations. You know, if you look at uh, this one Moonlight Moon Knight, uh, story we did for a Marvel Presents comic, it was just a 10 pager. But there's this one scene at the end where Moon Knight breaks into this facility and everybody is sort of possessed inside of it. The orderlies are possessed, the nurses are possessed, the janitors are possessed, the patients. And there's this one patient who's sort of controlling them all. And so he has to get, Moon Knight has to get through this whole facility to that room where this one guy is physically prone, but his mind is, you know, monstrous and, and possessive. Uh, and so, you know, I knew that Juan liked to do this from our work on Green Arrow because he would do like the sewer scene or a breaking into a facility scene. And he'd show like a cross section or this train scene we did in Green Arrow yeah. where he'd show like all the different train cars and what Green Arrow was doing in each of them or this building. And it's like, you're watching, you're seeing, when I say MC Escher, right? You see like, yeah. it's incredible the way that it's three-dimensional in the, in the blueprinting. And, and so that whole break-in scene is a splash page where you see like maybe 30 different versions of, of Moon Knight kicking ass in various parts of this building, all on one page. Um, so I, play, I would play up to Juan's strengths in that way. Uh, Otto Schmidt, who I also worked with on Green Arrow, right? That guy is exceptionally good at emotion. Mm. That's what I'm talking about Juan there. It's not that Juan's not great at emotion, but he just like certain things like people pop on and Juan, uh, you know, uh, I, I would, I would build towards these layouts or these dynamic action set pieces with auto. I would make the issues more about black canary and green arrows relationship because he was so good at, I mean, let's just be honest. Uh, the horniness of it all. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> uh, and right now, you know, with with Wolverine or with X Force, um, you know, Adam is a legend, and he has incredible ideas when it comes to storytelling. So, you know, what I'll typically do is I'll write him a summary of what the story is going to be. I'm like, okay, Adam, this three issue arc or this four issue arc, we're going to be. This is the story. This is what it's about, like, you know, capital A about kind of way. And he'll be like, oh, I've got an idea. <clears throat> and so, for instance, we recently did a story about um, Solemn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Been following uh, X-Force or Wolverine. You know, Solemn is this character introduced in Ten of Swords. He's from Araco and he's a trickster and you know, I refer to him as sort of like the Loki to Wolverine's Thor. <clears throat> and, and, and I called this story the unusual suspects. This was like, you know, play on the usual suspects. And so it was all about interrogation, unreliable interrogation, where Wolverine is a sort of detective on a case, and he's interviewing different people and trying to figure out who did this, who done it, you know? Mm -hmm. 
thing, and there's twists and twists and twists upon twists. And everybody he's talking to is unreliable in some way, whether it's like a Russian mobster or a pirate or an Iraqi pirate or whomever. And so every time he interviews somebody, Adam had the idea, okay, I'll, let's do a different color scheme. I'll talk to Frank about that and have a different color scheme for every flashback. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he'd be interviewing somebody, they'd be like, oh, well, this is what happened. And you go into the past and see that. He's like, not only that, let's have different borders for everybody that's different story, like different layouts. So, yeah. You, I no, remember us talking example. about that when yeah, that, we were look, talking about those issues. Like that really stuck that, out to us. That arc in particular, just super immersive into the various offshoot stories that he's he's going as he's doing this detective type narrative, going in and, and figuring out this. Uh, that was that was really great. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, and, you know the opening scene is of Wolverine and Madripoor walking along a street kind of this noir-ass moment where he stops and watches a shell game. And that's the whole story, right? That, the story is one big shell game in the way that it moves around. And, and Adam was like trying to do that with the shells that were moving in every different issue, each had their own artistic sensibility. That's cool. That's awesome. That's so interesting to think about and, and, and a great testament to you as a collaborator to really involve the other people as part of the story to connect yes. with them on what they want to bring to this and what they want to work out <clears throat> and how they want to work that out and just really playing to their strengths you, you were talking about the the cross-section different pieces showing one character doing across and i remembered as you were saying that the domino and colossus on that that train with all the yeah. the mm xeno guys right. and just just tearing through all of them and it, interesting to see how that connects to various creators sensibilities yeah yeah and, you know that's one of the reasons that it's so important to have if you can long-term planning with artists um mm-hmm. because you know if you just know you're going five issues forward that can be tricky in terms of developing a relationship or if you know that an artist can only do three issues and then maybe they won't be back or two issues and they won't be back. Like if you know you're in this, uh, you know, in a long-term relationship, I guess you could say, then the communication becomes essential to the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. I love that. I love it. And I love when people plan. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I'm a big fan of storytellers who really think about what they're doing, like forever in the, advance, the arc, the it's, full yeah. arc. Cause yeah. I just feel like it just makes the story feel so much more full when you go back and look at it after you finish the whole thing, you can pick things out. So just knowing that you guys do that. So yeah, deep yeah. Into the storytelling, it just makes it so much more juicy I've, to me. It's I've been, you know, I've been unlucky and lucky in that regard. Um, lucky in that, like with Wolverine and X-Force, we knew that we had a lot of rope going into it like you know we go to that first summit the x-men summit and that was january of of 19 i believe and that's when we were you know it's hickman it's jordan white it's um me it's jerry duggan it's tini howard and it got bigger over time but that first you know summit was pretty small and we're just horse trading we're putting characters on the table three by five cards and mixing and matching. We're talking about if this is before Hickman had even scripted, you know, we're looking, 
we're talking about, you know, the Bible that he wrote and like, okay, how can we build upon this and what stories can, what can the sensibility of every series be and, and so on and so forth. And, and, you know, I knew that I could tell a novelistic story, which is my preference. Hmm. And that's always how I pr approach things. You know, I, I approach a comic series as though it's going to be maybe 50 issues if I'm lucky. Um, that doesn't happen that often anymore in comics, but right. uh, I have no doubt it's going to happen in this case. Hmm. And, and I could have been, you know, I could have, it could have been shorter. You know, I knew that it, it, maybe it would only be 20, maybe, maybe I'd get to 30 if I was lucky, but I just know at this point how much runway I have. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I did that with Green Arrow as well. I just approached it like a novel and it went for 50 issues. If you count the new 52 stuff as well. Yeah. Um, but with Nightwing, I got cut off. Mm. You know, I had this big plan and it had been approved and greenlit and i thought i had two years and at least and then all of a sudden like nightwing got shot in the head and he was going to be called rick grayson Dang. and so sometimes your plans blow up yeah but yeah i've been lucky with the the x stuff to to be able to chart my course mm -hmm. that's awesome and especially when you have those those yarns spinning and you have the potential to bring them back in and to start to interweave and then you have to for whatever reason have to exit something but sounds like sounds like things are on the long term for for x-men and we did want to yeah, talk yeah you know, the way that i approach it the way i approach it is like i think that people are impatient comic fans especially yeah uh, i don't maybe this exists in other arenas but i i've no, i'm so surprised by how they want you immediately to spoil a story or ruin a story by front-loading everything. Yeah. You know, yeah. online, like, what, what's going to happen in the story? <laughs> Isn't that the delight of reading? Is not <laughs> Don't you want to experience it? Yeah. Uh, and, and comic fans are notorious for exactly that. Like, even some, a lot of them don't even appear to read the comics. They just read what the comic is about on some site <laughs> and then get mad about it from that. And I, I, anyways, comic fans are also awesome because they're so passionate. But, but that always confused me. And, and yeah, when it comes to their impatience, though, I've noticed that five issue arcs are tough to pull off. Six issue arcs are pull, tough to pull off. I feel like that there is a, uh, you know, it's, there's attrition that occurs naturally in comics. You know, if you look at issue one versus issue th three versus issue seven and so on, you know, it tends to be like going down. But the way I found to fight that, and people can argue with me, but it's been successful with X-Force and Wolverine, um, is I never let anything really go past three issues. I still have a 12-issue arc for the story, for a certain story, but I interrupt it. Mm. So I'll be like, okay, we're going to focus on the Russians or the vampires for these three or two issues. And then I'm going to give you a cliffhanger, and I'm going to go do something else. And then I'm going to come back to them later. So you're still getting a 12-issue arc on that storyline. It's just broken up over several years, as opposed to here's a year that we were just going to do vampire stuff. Right. Or here's a year where we just do Russian stuff or whatever. Yeah. Which I feel like that adds more dynamicism to the threats, to the, the, the ways that the heroes or the characters respond. And yeah. You're introducing a lot of elements that you can then later on interweave. Yeah. They drive some people crazy. You know, like, yeah. It's like, well, you know, you're, people are still reading. So something must be 
So we must be working. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so we're, we're talking about X-Men. Uh, how did you become a fan of X-Men first? Uh, well, you know, I grew up in a pretty rural area, as I mentioned before. So rural that, you know, we didn't have a grocery store at a mercantile. And my mom would deposit me at the end of the aisle beneath the spinner rack and tell me to stay and be good. Well, she went up and down the aisles and uh, filled her cart. And I would just read comic books. And if I was good, she let me take one home. Um, and that was, you know, my definitive sort of childhood reading experience. You know, I, I don't remember the first novel that I read. Maybe it was The Hobbit or The Clock, House of the Clock and Its Walls. I remember reading those in like fourth grade. I'm sure there were books before that, but I just don't, they didn't stick. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and by contrast, I can remember every comic I ever read. Mm-hmm. And that's because I read them over and over and over and over and again until they fell apart in my hands. And I was reading Warlord. I was reading Spider-Man. I was reading Punisher. I was reading Batman. I was reading X-Men. You know, so it's it from that very early age um you know i probably started buying comics in the i mean the the oldest comic i own is a man thing the date back dates back to 1980 i would have been one years old Uh, i'm 100 sure it came from that that mercantile you know so yeah i have x-men comics from when i was three years old um so it's just just part of that you know early early nutrients mm-hmm. yeah part of that formative experience too just really there's there's, there's characters that, i mean there's marvel characters and dc characters i've never read a single issue of. yeah and you know i found what i liked and i just stuck with that yeah <laughs> uh, so I mean, our, our podcast is me gradually introducing her into x-men and x-men continuity i've been a lifelong fan she had never read a comic before we started the podcast so not that's a just single one trying to bring people into the lore and get them deeper and every time i try to pitch hey well i mean this is kind of interesting issue of black panther i don't want to read it i'm like, just i'm trying to figure out all the things that are going on in x-men and there's a lot going on in x-men yeah and that's i mean enough i don't i don't know the entire x-men continuity and i'm writing <laughs> i i like to read like murder boards and like yeah. timelines and try to think that i think everything in every issue means something and um, I go a little crazy about it. It's but complicated. It's yeah. yeah, but you got it. Like when you lay it all out, it's kind of um, incredible what you all have yeah. done. Um, so keep up the good work on that front. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, it would always be it would always be a fun time to write the X Men, but I feel especially lucky to be doing it now with the, this mm-hmm. whole Age of Krakoa stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you're talking about the characters that you have connected with. You have read over years do you have any favorite x characters or stories or eras or, or creators that you've grown to love or that have influenced you in your work well yeah i mean wolverine's always been my favorite character in comics so yeah i'm childhood dream come true i know that sounds corny to be writing them um you know i guess there's just something about being a hairy smelly square shaped grumpy Cigar chomping, bourbon swilling, dude from the frozen north, where it feels like thinly veiled autobiography. <laughs> so um, I have I have a story for you. So the 
This was New York Comic Con 2019. Yep. It was yep. our first New York Comic Con. And I'd never been to like an X-Men comics panel or anything. So we go to the panel and they're talking about all the new books and you're up on the stage, like all the peeps. And the Wolverine book comes up and they're like, Benjamin Percy is writing it. And then you started talking. And I looked at Justin and I said, so Wolverine is white was writing the Wolverine comic. <laughs> and like on our podcast in the beginning, like every time we would talk about you as a writer, I'd be like the real life Wolverine. <laughs> so I love that you also love thinking of Wolverine as an autobiography because that's how I see <laughs> you in my mind. <laughs> Highest accolades, right? <laughs> You are Wolverine. Well, I feel I feel a strong kinship to the character, which is not to say that I've murdered thousands of people. <laughs> no, 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 no. On behalf of a shadow agency or anything, but <laughs> I, relate, I relate to his core sensibilities. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's the one you know I align with the most, and I. It's honestly hard to imagine. You know, once my run ends, like I might just wore right off into the sunset. Then, yeah. Because I don't know if anything could top that except writing Batman. Yeah. Mm. yeah. <sighs> well, it, but I'm, 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 you know, very, I'm grateful every day to be telling, telling these stories. That's awesome. We're grateful that you're telling them. Yeah. Thanks. And you were mentioning earlier, so you've been involved in the conversation that, that first summit in January, 2019, when, Hickman wasn't even scripting it was just kind of like starting the ideas what was your reaction to that work and the 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 potential that was where you were at and uh kind of what was going through your mind with what could be ahead of you well Hickman and I first started talking in the fall of 2018 and that's when I signed an NDA to Marvel and they shared the document with me that was his bible for Hawks Pox and Upon reading it, I was like, holy shit, this is <laughs> this is gonna be a big deal. Uh not just for because Hickman's a badass storyteller, but also because there was something in the air. And what I mean by that is right, the, some of the great speculative stories channel cultural unease, channel the cultural moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, Godzilla which is about post-atomic anxieties. Look at Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is about the Red Scare and McCarthyism. Look at Frankenstein, how it's born out of the Industrial Revolution and the fear of science and technology. Mm-hmm. Look at the George Romero movies and how he reinvented the metaphor in every era in which he made those. Um, you know, Night of Living Dead, very much about the civil rights movement, if in a shaded sort of way. Dawn of the Dead, all about the rise of consumerism and Reaganism, setting them all. Zombies putting putting quarters from the fountains in their pockets. Um, and, and, you know, sloughing about staring at mannequins through shop windows. And, and, and Day of the Dead being about Cold War anxieties and on and on and on, right? If you look at what's going on in the X-Men, which was evident from that very first Bible that I read, it is a reflection of what's going on in this country. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about Black Lives Matter. I'm talking about me, the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about marginalized communities standing up and saying that's enough, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. That's enough is essentially the, the core of, of the story. Yeah. And so I knew it was gonna strike a nerve. And 
And yeah, uh, you know, in in writing X-Force and pitching X-Force, and I knew I had that gig in October of 2018 because Hickman called me when I was about to walk into the Halloween reboot. And he said, uh, you know, I think you'd kill it on X-Force. And I took him literally. Um, <laughs> it's the murder book, you know, but the, the whole idea behind that was that if you have the mutants rising up and creating their own state and demanding sovereignty from the world, there's going to be a lot of people who are reasonably excited about this. Like it's about time, right? Yeah. But nobody's going to believe in it unless there's some shadows to offset the sunlit jungle. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of X-Force is that the mutant CIA and no matter how bold and utopian this experiment might be, bad things have to happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's true of any, any nation that rises to power. Dark dealings happen behind the scenes. So I wanted to lean into that element of it and create a morally complicated uh, offshoot to the optimism that otherwise would, um, you know, rise up in some of the other books yeah well it's working yeah no some people hate it but that's oh okay. not us we, wanted, we, we, we love it all, we, we all the like book. live for x-force and wolverine all the time we wanted, from, we, we wanted the books to have different sensibilities like you know excalibur it's much more whimsical romantic mm -hmm. and, and and then new mutants is like a totally different sort of situation and marauders is a different we wanted a story for everybody Mm -hmm. Right. Some people don't want to read the murder book. You need a murder book. <laughs> everybody yeah, yeah. needs it. Especially when you have everybody backstabbing and going crazy and, and just the, the 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 shadows, like you mentioned, that, that was from issue one. I feel like that was there. That Zeno, I, I love Zeno. I feel like yes. that the peacock man. That is, peacock man. Uh, yeah. yeah, that story, uh that's actually the resolution to that is coming soon. Thank goodness. <laughs> I'm yeah. ready. Is it? There's a story behind the mask. Oh, and I think it'll surprise people. Yes. Cool. Cool. That make we just had a whole conversation. Obviously, you don't have to say anything, but we had a whole conversation on our last episode about whether or not, like Justin was like, I don't want to know who's behind the mask. And I was like, take it all. <laughs> I just love the mystery. <laughs> I love the the terror that is him in this organization. And, yeah. and from day one, just set up to do some really intense and twisted things to get into the mutants population to get into their island yeah the bio horror is something yeah. body horror is something i really have leaned into it's kind of a reanimator quality to that guy yeah mm -hmm. i feel like i want to get to the juicy stuff okay <laughs> for the team setup like who was on that team how it was going to become like the mutant cia where did that setup come from uh, that's what uh, just immediately occurred to me. If you have a black ops team, it was like, that's how X-Force has operated in the past. Like crank up the volume on that and you have a, mm -hmm. essentially an agency instead. And the way that I wanted to arrange it is to have two characters who are aligned and at odds at the same time. Because I knew how the story would end when I began it. And those two characters are Beast and Wolverine, Ooh. right? 
And Beast is the head and Wolverine is the fist. Beast is the head of intelligence. Wolverine is the head of the wet work operations, the field ops, right? They're the two main characters of the story. It's not that the other characters aren't important. They are. Mm -hmm. And I want to have spotlight moments for all of them. Um, but, but they're the two characters who are, you know, united in this mission to protect Krakoa. But Beast is becoming quite literally more and more bloated with hubris, if you notice what we've been doing physically with him over time. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and he's going to become, there's some other things that are going to happen to him physically that are interesting um, in the near future. If you notice that in the past issue where he gets the scalpel to the eyeball and such. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of an oracle figure in that way. And anyways, the, you know, as we move forward, like they're becoming, their sensibility is diverging. Mm. Right. And Wolverine from the very beginning has spent a lot of time yelling at that tree. Um, maybe more than any other character. He, you know, he, re he refuses to drink the Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. Um. And so, you know, the final storyline that I'll write for X-Force is very much about that hmm. divergence. Hmm. And it's really, you know, rise to a crescendo that's cataclysmic. Um, but that's not happening yeah. in the immediate future. Good to know. But yeah, that, that always stuck out to me, especially from the early issues. I was rereading X-Force that just, he has this, Wolverine has this distrust of, the peace and of mm -hmm. the comfort and of what that could mean to him and not wanting to feed into it, but at the same time, enjoying what they have to a degree, kind of this balance between what's too much. Uh, that, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, some sort of rabid squirrel assaulting my window. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a spy sent by beast. Uh, the, you know, the, the way this next issue, it's Wolverine, uh, I'm bad at math. I think it's Wolverine 19 <laughs> that comes out in, uh, on Wednesday. It's very much about sort of the, the questions that Wolverine is wrestling with uh, when it comes to his role in this place. Because he is, on the one hand, right, thrilled that the mutants have a home. Mm -hmm. Thrilled that they have a flag. You know, he has... He has a place that he can call home that's near his adopted and biological family. Uh, but he also feels that this, you know, all-inclusive luxury resort is a bit of a pipe dream. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love his perspective of if you just enjoy the safety, then you get soft. Yeah. That whole thing was, it's, it feels like it's such an important, like, linchpin in the overarching Cohen story that I'm excited to see. I'm yeah. ready for Wednesday now. Some, there's some chaos coming. I'll say that. What you can love chaos. Chaos fuels that narrative. You know, from the beginning, what we wanted to do was be additive. You know, that's one of the things we talked a lot about with Hickman in that first summit. Don't break things. You know, we're just getting started here. No storylines where you break things. Instead, build. Mm -hmm. Build upon this this foundation. Uh, the idea being that we'd get to the point where we needed to break things, and we wanted that to feel earned, mm. and not sort of uh, succumb to the impatience of comic book fans. 
<laughs> I love a slow build. Long, long, slow burn here. Yeah. And eventually catches fire. <laughs> well, we're uh, we're talking about Krakoa. We're talking about the safety of Krakoa. I need to bring up. I I love the Green Lagoon. Alicia makes fun of me because I I want to hang out there all the time. It oh, just. Yeah. Seems like you know the Krakoa's hangout spot. Do you, who do you want to see sing Krakoan karaoke next, or or, or what else goes on in uh, in the Green Lagoon? Because that if I was a mutant, I don't think I'd leave. I would just be hanging out by the bar. Yeah, you working, all have fun in your murder yeah. books. You and you and Blob would be yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know Joshua Kassara. I'll give him credit. Like that was. He, he has a career prior to being a comic book artist as a bartender. Like he was like a big deal bartender um, doing massive events in the LA area. And anyways, he's like, you know, where are these guys drinking? So I was like, cause I would, you know, I get on the phone a lot with Josh and just talk things out. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very good question. <laughs> um and so you know we built up this idea of the green lagoon and i had this idea of you know the wolverines playing russian roulette there yeah the game of spin the bottle you know and the snick to the <laughs> snick to the skull and i don't know if josh ever posted online the original art for that moment um they made us black it out and make it a silhouette but you know docking like it shows vividly <laughs> him spearing his own brain That's it was awesome. amazing and and yeah, then later on, I was like, well, I gotta be doing karaoke, right? Right, of course. <laughs> Drew in that other scene in the recent arc. Yeah. Bob's up there, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> that was like my favorite part. <laughs> and, you know, Pyro's up there. We didn't start the fire. Yeah. So good. <laughs> I actually, you know, we, I'm on a Slack with all the X writers. And we check in every day about there's different threads on all the different series and there's a general thread as well and there's tiki bar essentially our green lagoon where we just share jokes and bullshit about stuff and i actually went into the tiki bar and i was like okay i'm gonna do a karaoke scene uh anybody got any goofy ideas for songs throwing out ideas but yeah that, love- that, that, that two-page spread that josh did that took him like 10 days yeah it's so good. It's so, and the number of times that I've gotten lost in that spread to just try and zoom in and you know name all the people and just mm-hmm. the detail that that brought, and also just the opportunity. You know, you're talking about additive, the opportunity that that then brings for other people to play in there. That's now a location that we can all delve into and, and build up further. It was really fun to be able to to build that location and places like the Healing Gardens. Mm-hmm. They yeah. first appeared in X Force and just design the sort of sensibility with the artist of a location that becomes part of the community. She, she calls me out. I love maps. Oh my God. He loves maps. I love maps and I love details. And, and it was, I think it was first issue of X-Force, just the layers of defenses and how that, that gave you a visual of more of the building, mm-hmm. the building up of this Island and how right. it's protecting itself. I just, like I the, love al- the algae that surround yeah the the island the skirt of algae that's sensitive yeah connected yeah. to black tom yeah. ah black tom well there's a there's a lot going on with a lot of characters and you kind of touched on this but i just have one question uh what's up with beast <laughs> what's up with beast like what <laughs> like what's up with beast well i mean 
I imagine that he is bloated with hubris, but I guess that the, the, the core, you know, if you think of him as a villain, which is likely, uh, you know, the most interesting villains have a code. Mm -hmm. They're not evil. They might make ugly decisions, but they're not evil. You can understand where they're coming from. Like you understand where Thanos is coming from, even right. if he's a terrible person, <laughs> you get it. Um, and so, or, or Killmonger, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Is he a bag? I don't, you know, Mag is Magneto was right. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm saying like these characters have yeah. like a core tenant that drives them. And in Beast's case, you know, it's utilitarianism. Hmm. He believes in the, the greatest good for the greatest number of mutants. And I've talked about a short story before that influenced me in this regard. It's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin. And in that story, she describes this exquisite city by the and it has, you know, bright shining towers and it has pennants rippling in the wind and it has lush gardens and it has streets that are constantly full of parades, cheers, the sound of trumpets, and the chime of tambourines and such, and, and there are ponies prancing in meadows and everything. And, and then right in the middle of the story, she has a single sentence paragraph. And the question that she poses is, do you believe? Mm -hmm. And you don't, you know, because you never believe in anything utopian. Right. It's too good to be true. Uh, and then she says, well, let me show you something else. And she takes you underneath the city into the basement of one of these beautiful buildings. And there's a closet. And in that basement closet, there's a child. And the child's locked up. And the child is starved. And the child is covered in sores. And the child is feeble-minded from lack of interaction or education. It can't even make words. And every now and then, people go in and stare at the child and kick it or... Um, you know, mock it. And the premise is that the city of Omelas can't exist without this child. Wow. And people are willing to go along with this, right? Because in a way, that's the truth of our world mm. is that some will suffer. Right. And we'll choose to ignore it. We'll put it in the basement of our minds mm -hmm. so we can enjoy our you know, our luxuries and privilege. Um, and that's beast sensibility right there. It's like, I don't care if I have to kill people as long as we win, mm -hmm. as long as mutants win. And, and the thing about that short story that's important to realize though, is that some people who go down into that basement and see that kid are sickened and then they leave Omelas. They choose to walk away. Right. And so that's been kind of like a guiding sensibility for me when it comes to these different characters, some of these different characters, and different points of the moral compass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to just think. I mean, we we were on a, another podcast talking about we put we put Hank McCoy on trial. That was mm -hmm. the, the idea of the podcast throughout his continuity. And everyone was was. Uh, rough on him for recent actions but <laughs> fascinated by what he brought to the yeah. overall world narrative and to just yeah. hear you talk about 
the the sensibilities and then the way that he's justifying it for the greater good really connects even further to like wow this is this is a fascinating character this yeah. is someone that you want to follow you want to watch you want to see what else is next and and to to your point of who that's gonna to shake the wrong way that's why gene stepped away right that's why she couldn't go along yeah, with what was doing. i knew she was from the very beginning i was like gene's right. too good for this game yeah they, they <laughs> gotta go too dark uh, and then you know the thing about beast too is that he's grown it's not just that utilitarian drive like there's also he enjoys the power Mm-hmm. you know and, and he can always justify any action right yeah <laughs> because he can do it because he is beast but you know what he says is like you need a bastard yeah that's that's a line in the series is like yep every nation needs a bastard i'm that bastard yeah i don't care if you hate me you need me i do hate him but i love <laughs> i love to hate him though. yeah yeah oh, in so the good. best way it's so good <laughs> I mean, there's that bounding happy beast exists, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. on a backup somewhere. Uh, <laughs> but, but I'm not interested in that character. <laughs> That's not for me. <laughs> yeah, and he's done some shady shit in the past. Oh, it's yeah. not just me who's written him in that direction. No, no, no. We, I learned a lot during that trial. I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> So outside of Wolverine and and Beast within X-Force, who has been your favorite character to really like dig into? Well, you know, I'm trying to give everybody their spotlight. Like up front, it was Domino. Domino Mm -hmm. was the only spotlight. Uh, Recently, Kid Omega has really swung in to Mm -hmm. the center of the stage. And he's gone through uh, some interesting developments emotionally. And... You know, people always want, like, a character to, like, oh, he's going to change? Great. Like, uh, he's not going to be his, you know, asshole-ish self anymore. And he's going to move in this positive direction. And 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 that's not fully believable, right? You can't just do a direct 180. Like, I'm going to – I wanted to show him progress and then regress and then stumble and then maybe push forward even farther and stumble again. Like, there's no clean line. For anybody, mm-hmm. so his is a complicated journey, and there's something pretty big that's going to happen to him um, as soon as the Ten Lives of Wolverine event ends. I mean, Justin always says he didn't care about Kid Omega before I, I these didn't, these that, issues, and you make him like him. <laughs> you made you invested me in Kid Omega in Quentin Choir. Uh, it was the the story when he's he's connecting with Phoebe about his his past trauma and just getting yeah, yeah, to know yeah. who he was and and a little bit of why he's that way and. I just felt like that opened up new depths to that character that I had not previously engaged with. Yeah, trying to get into that core wound, as I said before. Yeah. Right? yeah. Why is he the way he is? And how can he move past it? Yeah. Now, on the he's other side up. of... I'm sorry. Uh, I was just saying, he's messed the, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wanted yeah. to, like, I, I killed him. He was like my Kenny, you know? Yeah, yeah. In South Park for a while there. Like, every every issue, we killed him. Oh, Kenny. And that was what I saw as a necessary sort of way of getting him to be reborn. Hmm. Can't go through it. Yeah. Now, on the other side of those heroes, we do have our, our villains. And I want to call up one in particular who I think is just 
intriguing to no end the the chronicler the the kind of long game tease throughout these data pages of the story and and his very unique power set can you talk to us about his development how long you've been planning his influence on colossus and just where does he come from because that was the chronicler i was i was on that last page where he has the the page coming up and it's in russian i was on all these reddit boards like trying to translate like what is this in russian what is he writing what does this mean I think that translates, I, you know, I'm so many issues past that right now. Right. I think the title of that short story was The Red Brother. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so the, you know, if I go way, way back, I can't remember if it was an amazing stories episode or a Tales from the Crypt episode. There was an artist who, whatever he would draw, would come to life. And I was always fascinated by that idea as a kid. Um, I think he ends up accidentally killing himself by drawing some sort of monster that attacks him or whatever. I realized when I was looking at just power sets of different characters and stuff, I was like, has there ever been a mutant writer? And there's been a few characters who wrote, but like that wasn't, I was so interested in the idea of a power set. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, For metatextual reasons too. You know, here I am, like conjuring worlds and character motivations, and like, what if on another level there was a character doing exactly that within the story? Mm-hmm. Um, and if there was a great writer, I thought, why not a Russian? Because right, everything you need to know, as Kurt Vonnegut said, can be found in the brothers Karamazov, like mm-hmm. Dostoevsky. Yeah, it was one of the greats. Tolstoy, it's one of the greats. Chekhov, Turgenev. So let's make him a Russian. And from the very beginning, when you see Colossus come off the Marauder, that's issue one, right. and he's broken. Yeah, he's that was that's day one planning right there. That's awesome. We got to have a traitor on the island. Mm-hmm. But it's boring if it's the usual sort of traitor stuff. The mind wipes, the brain plants, whatever. Or just, you know, Colossus isn't believable as just being a betrayer of mutant kind. Mm. If he had his own druthers like that, that doesn't track. So what if instead he is a reluctant traitor because he's being puppeted? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea is that this writer is in a gulag, essentially. You know, Mikhail is a, Mikhail's a character who is... V- is central to the 10 lives of Wolverine event. The reason I'm interested in him is because his power set is so mushy. It doesn't, the way people have written in the pattern, like what, what exactly can Mikkel do? <laughs> what I, don't, is I, don't get, I don't get it, <laughs> but he's such a cool character. Yeah. So I want him to be, he, he can sort of build and break worlds in a way, like he controls matter and he can create these dimensional rifts. And, and so, you know, he, the chronicler is in a dimensional rift. Uh, you know, if you think about the Stranger Things uh, mm-hmm. vibe when L11 goes into, you know, the other world, like she's into in that the upside, black yeah. environment where she's like walking across water and finds things in there. Mm. Um, you know, that's what I imagine these dimensional rifts look like. Huh. And so he's essentially in a gulag, in other words. And Mikkel has forced him to work for him. 
or he's going to stab his hand with a broken wine bottle or he's going to, you know, keep booze away from him, uh, you know, because he's an alky. And, and yeah, this character is just like a tragic figure who has like this immense power, uh, but is beholden to Mikhail's will. That's very exciting. So, yeah, it's a fun character. I mean, I was teasing that for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, these data pages and people are like, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, why is there all this weird prose in the middle of my comic? And I just knew over time I was going to change. I was going to like not only show a passage, like first I would just do like fancy prose. Mm-hmm. And then I do fancy prose with the chronicler at the bottom. Yeah. And then I would do fancy prose, with the chronicler at the bottom, but I'd have like a, the first paragraph is crossed out and then the next paragraph is rewritten to be something else. Like it was just like a, very slow reveal which which, to kind of go back to what we had been talking about earlier that made me when that reveal came out i went back through Mm -hmm. all those pages you know i I wanted to reread those details and see how that built and it's just so interesting to see that that is part of the story all along and that that is what we are getting tastes of as we go yeah yeah he's he's a character i'm really excited about and and I hope he becomes lar- part of the, you know, the larger Marvel canon. Mm. You always hope that, you know, you put something in the books that'll last longer than you. Right, right. So with the announcement that X-Force is coming back to us in April, is there, are there any characters or threats that you're excited about that you can kind of give us a little tease? Little pepper? Oof. <laughs> There's things that I'm very excited about. <laughs> I figure out how I can talk about them without spoiling stuff. Let's just—I'll say one thing. One of my favorite villains in Marvel, uh, who I have written about before on one of the podcasts, and I'll keep it vague which podcast it was. Oh. Uh, one of my favorite characters is going to be central to a storyline this coming summer. So, and I'm going to have a very Cormac McCarthy sort of sensibility about that that storyline um as a result of the 10 lives of wolverine and the ex deaths of wolverine event which begins in january and ends in march uh let's just say that a cerebro unit is going to be impacted severely and you'll see you've seen in the cover art already the teaser art that was put out for x force and the the destiny of x you mm-hmm. see that that cerebro unit which almost looks like some sort of Doc Ock monster. Yes, uh, exactly what we thought. <laughs> yeah, the Cerebrex. Cerebrex, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So that'll be really fun. And and yeah, I mean, I just... Let's just say there are some line-wide things that are happening that will create a ripple, major ripple effect in the books when it comes to that chaos I was talking about before. Cool. That's awesome. That, that just... That's part of the reason that I've really enjoyed this Hox Pox era, this Krakoan era, is because of the ways that one book affects another or the world affects the line. Mm-hmm. And to see this interconnected narrative build through various voices and through different character groups has been really great. Yeah, yeah. But thinking about that, that one character that's partial to you, what do you think about Wolverine that makes him a fan favorite? What, what has made him be your favorite and the favorite of, of many fans out there? Question. I think it has to do with a, a few different things. 
when it comes to him having a history of violence and being polluted by that, poisoned by that, um, and driven to atone for his past sins, mm-hmm. you know, he's burdened by all the blood that he spilled, you know, enough blood to fill a reservoir, especially as Weapon X. And, you know, he, he's carrying that luggage around with him, that emotional luggage around with him, even, even though he can't remember it all. Um, and he always has that driving suspicion that people are going to use him as a tool in the future. Um, you know, I think people love a hero that is complicated uh, because most people are complicated. I mean, Superman is a dream. Captain America is a dream, an aspirational dream. I'm not knocking them when I say that. Mm-hmm. I'm not, but what I am saying is that they are unrealistic mm-hmm. when it comes to the human heart. Um, nobody is that Boy Scout. Uh, and Wolverine isn't aspirational. In the same way, a werewolf isn't aspirational, um, right? But there's a certain relatability instead that makes him resonate with people. Um, you know, he's got, when it comes to other elements about him that are compelling, you know, um, he's at odds with his environment oftentimes. Like he, he has this want for solitude. Uh, he's got this heart, but it's a heart that's buried beneath this cage of hair and muscle and adamantium. Uh, he's a reluctant hero. His, his desire to help people is offset by his desire to escape them. Um, so he's constantly at odds with his environment, in other words, in that he's constantly being drawn onto teams. And he's not a team player. Right. And I think people just like that for the same reason they like odd couples in mm-hmm. romance stories and in buddy cop movies, you know, because you're always wondering, there's this underlying suspense as to like, will this relationship perish because of the way they're in, they're in conflict and you wonder that about wolverine like will his road to perdition you know uh will he get lost in his road to perdition because he's such a complicated dude and and doesn't want to help and doesn't want to be around all these people but has mm-hmm. to um and then you know there's different things that are relatable about him and this that are relatable about the hulk as well like he's got these primal urgency urgent you know uh urges inside of him he's caged up and sometimes he goes off leash mm-hmm. um and everybody everybody can relate to that in the way that whether it's too much to drink or you're too exhausted or you're too mad or too whatever right we we all sometimes do things that, that step outside of societal norms and then regret them later. Mm. And and he's one of those people. Um, and just the the uncertainty of his memory, I think, makes him such a fascinating character because he he can never truly be certain who he is. Mm-hmm. You know because. He doesn't own his own history. And I think that that, that's a constant mystery 
yeah drives the story forward that's cool. so it's those things and it's others yeah, yeah. yeah when you are like getting ready to write logan what do you do to get into the mindset to write for him oh uh, you know slam a few shots of whiskey and punch myself in the face <laughs> perfection yeah i mean when you when i write any story i just i think of character first I think that no matter, you know, sometimes that's forgotten when you're, when you're writing comics because comics are so much about spectacle. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter like how incredible your vampire train is or how scary your squid aliens are or how cool your time machine thing is. Like if you don't have a, a beating heart at the center of your story, who cares? Right. Uh, so... I'm trying to think about character first, Wolverine first. And, and then whatever happens when it comes to, you know, the theatrics of taking down a helicopter that's in pursuit or, or what, like mm -hmm. that stuff is all secondary to what's going on inside him in a soulful sort of way. Yeah. So the, the Wolverine comic has this really amazing detective Western influence and we were just hoping you could tell us a little bit about why you why you chose to write the stories that way. Well, I guess you could say that's naturalistic in a way and instinctual since I'm so often a consumer of those types of stories. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, if you look at Wolverine the Long Night, for instance, yes, it's a podcast, it's also an adapted story as a comic series. Um, you know, one of the primary influences on that was Unforgiven where you've got this guy with a history of violence played by Clint Eastwood, who has severed himself from society, uh, but he gets drawn back into the fray with great reluctance. Mm -hmm. That's the story of Wolverine the Long Night, but it's also the story of True Detective. You know, True Detective was a big influence on that uh, and that I wanted interrogation to be essential to the storytelling, to the structure where, you know, we're going to interview all these people and get stories that can't be trusted from all of them. And the audience is going to have to lean forward and become a kind of detective themselves and to figure out what actually happened. Mm -hmm. So right there, my first Wolverine story is exactly what you said, a Western and a crime story. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's, my, that's my storytelling DNA. And I think that uh, Wolverine is a parallel to you know, cowboy figures, gunslinger characters, because they are parallels to Ronin figures and samurai stories. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's also, there's a parallelism to Wolverine as a noir detective. Um, you know, in both cases, we're talking about loners. Mm -hmm. Trying to navigate impossible situations. Yeah. That's cool. I love that. Yeah. He's a loner. So, you have Wolverine, he's that solo character, he's got his title, and you have X-Force, who he's a part of. What, what's the distinction between the two? What makes like a Wolverine story where he's out on his own with maybe a couple of people from X-Force? Because I love that as like tech team. You mentioned the, uh, the, the helicopter chase and that, that issue in particular felt like an action movie that yeah. I, was, I was reading an action movie. And, like, you could feel the intensity of it. But then, but then you have the X-Force team that kind of involves him or he takes a, a leading role in. Yeah, I mean, the, they're, 
working in symmetry, mm. in synergy. Uh, but you can read one or the other. You'll have a much richer experience if you're reading both, but you can read one or the other and still follow along. But they, you know, X-Force is at its heart the CIA story. Mm. And Wolverine plays a central role in that, but so does Kid Omega, so does Domino, so does Beast, so does Sage, so does Black Tom. You know, it's an ensemble. And uh, moral uncertainty is, you know, the core tenet of that series. Hmm. Uh, the Wolverine stories are about Logan. Right. And there are going to be occasional interactions with, hmm. you know, sometimes he's going to go to Sage and be like, hey, you know, I need some intel. In the same way that James Bond is going to go contact M or Q and ask for a hookup, you know. Mm -hmm. Wolverine will go to Forge and be like, I need a, this weapon or whatever. Or um, yeah. Right. Or adamant. <laughs> <laughs> that was my point break story. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they're the, the Wolverine stories are are mostly about Logan's heart, and the X-Force stories are mostly about the heart of a nation. Mm. That's interesting parallel between m and q and and sage and forge because as we were writing this that's that's the vibe that i've been getting of just that's his support team that's his yeah. his secret agent team that's providing him with the information and the gadgets and and whatever else he can dream yeah. of yeah and if you know you want to go underneath the water you know deep sea dive into a trench wolverine's indestructible but it'll be a lot easier mission if you you know have a tank on your back yeah. uh, yeah. that Forge put together and maybe a few phosphorus grenades. So Wolverine is coming into this big event that you've mentioned a couple of times. Uh, we are on, have on the, on our sites early January. What was yep. the inspiration for coming up with the, I think it's 10 lives and X deaths of Wolverine. Right. It's again, something that was built at ground zero. Awesome. Pitched at ground zero. You know, I don't have the book in front of me, but if you look at the first page of Wolverine, of my run, um, it starts off with narrative captions that go something like this. James, Logan, Weapon X, Patch, Wolverine, Canada, New York, Madripoor, Krakoa. He's lived all of these different lives, but his brain is bruised black because of the memory plants, because of the mind wipes. He's not sure how it all puzzle pieces together. And that sensibility will find you know, sort of its ultimate uh, time-shredding tableau in this event. Hmm. Uh, you know, I'm interested in the way that, that comics are, there's some sort of like parallelism between traveling and and reading comics i think and that if you're a traveler like there's this compulsion every now and then to return to a place that you've been mm -hmm. you know and 
you, you find a place for a second time. Instead of stumbling upon it, you deliberately seek it out and you're trying to recapture that feeling of discovery, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and maybe like you find that, that pub on a hillside or that cathedral that's tucked in between two mountains and, and the rough hewn door is still there, but the establishment is much smaller or it's, a cloudy day instead of sunny or you're there with friends instead of alone or or whatever and the, this is the mystery of repetition and the appeal of repetition and that same mystery of repetition is embedded in superhero comics you know you go back and we go back and we go back and we go back as readers and as writers again and again and again and at its worst it reads like karaoke and at its best the reimagining can become the definitive experience and I'm hoping to accomplish some version of this, like a, I can't say a definitive Wolverine experience, but I can say the greatest Wolverine story of all time. And by that, I'm underscoring the of all time of it all in that ah. I'm not trying to like disrespect other creators by saying that I'm trying to honor them and that I'm trying to channel this really complicated and broken legacy that others have built before me and showcase it all in this one 10 issue story, um, right? We know that Logan's brain has always been broken. We know he's been unable to properly patch together everyone he's loved and killed and every decade he's endured and every army and team he's been a part of, every organization that's used him or every bottle of whiskey he's drank. Again, it's the mind wipes, as I said before, it's the memory plants, it's just the expanse of time. Uh, the century plus of living and fighting. And um, he's never known. So we've never known what's totally real or not. And now we're in this story, we're making it real. We're trying to make the old known, but new. And, and so here are all the hidden lives, but revisited through the vantage of Krakoa. And, in the trailer for this event, you already have um, a taste of what I'm talking about, and I'm butchering it now, but it's talking about analog clocks. You know, I, I've always preferred analog clocks, Wolverine saying, because you can see the possibility of all time at once. Um, time sideways, times forwards and backwards and upside down. And that's in essence what this event is going to do for Logan. It's going to give you all the Wolverines. That's cool. And I think it's, I think it's the biggest, most ambitious thing I've ever written. Wow. That's exciting. That's super exciting. It's almost here. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I'm going to, hopefully, Omicron permitting, get on the road and uh, yes. hit up Midtown and hit up Third Eye and do a few other events. Nice. Nice. Well, so this this concept, as you're talking about it, it's it's like he's traveling throughout his past. Some of the stuff that we know, some of the stuff that we don't. What sure. was it like to to get into that entire canon of Wolverine? Did you did you dive in on your favorite character? Did you learn something that you didn't yeah. previously know? Or yeah, we're trying to dance between the raindrops and not not say anything that happened before didn't happen. But trying to say, here's what you didn't know about that. Mm. Recontextualize some of it or say, here's what happened right after that happened. Mm. That moment. Or here's what happened right before that moment. 
everybody knows, for instance, what happened to Wolverine in the Weapon X lab right. when he was injected with adamantium. But maybe you didn't know that there were other experiments before then. Mm-hmm. Right. That went terribly wrong. Right. Uh, and, and so on. You know, you know about Wolverine in the Old West. You know about Wolverine in the frontier north. You know about Wolverine. You think you know what happened during in Japan. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, there and it's not just the filling in the gaps thing. There's this is a race, a kind of terminator race through time mm-hmm. because of some because of a threat. Yeah, interesting. So I'm, I'm I'm like mentally taking notes. I'm like, okay, read this one, read uh, this one, read this. Barry story. Windsor Smith's <laughs> Weapon X. I'm gonna go check that out again. Just make yeah, sure. Yeah, that's special. That's yeah, right. Uh, any other particular arcs or events that maybe we should make sure that we have read or, or, or things? Oh, that just... I mean, I can say there's some T-Max stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, brush up on your Hawks Pox because we're going to the future as well. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> yes. I need more of that. I spent so much time trying to understand what was happening in the future, and then it went away. Foxbox so. was her first comic experience. That was a, those oh, are the first comics I ever read. Oh, that's a tough, yeah. tough but fun way to jump into it all. And that yeah. was that was the goal. I was like, I want to confuse and interest you enough <laughs> that you want to continue. Right. What's a Nimrod? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But also, we love him in the future. He's so yeah. playful and fun. Yeah. yeah. And not just the murder bot that he is now <laughs> we love the murder bot yeah so uh, there's, there's it's a and there's a direct baton pass from inferno as well oh uh, cool. yes i can't wait for that so that's essential reading that's a primer for what's happening especially in x deaths of wolverine hmm. okay everyone you hear that lines, they're converging sort of like in the same way the hawks pox did Nice. Do your homework, people. Yeah. Read your Wolverine comics. Yeah. Um, before we uh, wrap up this amazing experience, you you do so many things outside of writing for the X books. How do you find a balance between like writing all your different stories and and keeping your brain focused and and ready to go? Yeah, it's not easy sometimes. I'm probably doing a little too much right now, but opportunities rise up and it's hard to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, but compartmentalization is key, you know, like, okay, from this time to this time, I am working on the novel. I'm going to take my dog for a walk, eat lunch, and then I'm going to come back to the desk. And the whole time I'm walking the dog and eating lunch, I'm thinking about the gear shift because when I get back at the desk, I'm working on this X-Force comic mm-hmm. or this screenplay or this TV show or whatever. So usually I have like a chunk of something I'm working on in the morning, which is different than the chunk of something that I'm working on in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it'll be days at a time too, where like the novel, it's really hard to just jump in and out of a novel. So I'll try to do like, if I can get a week and just work on a novel, I can really get a lot done. As opposed to if I just jump in and do like four hours, like I've forgotten about the momentum of the story. Mm-hmm. And I have to like reread a bunch of stuff and find the voices again. And, mm-hmm. you know, by the time those four hours are over, I might not have really accomplished anything except gotten back in the mood for it. And then I'm off doing something else again. So, you know, com- I'm really good about um, organization, compartmentalization and being disciplined, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is a lousy superhero power in some senses. Like, 
I would be the most worthless X-Men because they'd be like, Sabretooth is coming, quick. Ben Percy, concentrate. <laughs> well, first we <laughs> should plan and then we should. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, like, all I would be able to do well is just like concentrate. <laughs> That's my superpower. I can go deep and I can, I can, you know, hours can go by and I have a bunch of pages in front of me. Yeah. Um, so not easily distractible. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Well, and especially when you're building these large worlds, we're talking, we're looking into the comet cycle and, and that as this big world that you're living in yep. and have been creating out of for the last year, almost you're coming up on the, on the second book coming up in second January. book comes out in January. That's the unfamiliar garden. And then the third book comes out sometime in 2022. Yeah. Hopefully. Right. So working on that one. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it, what tells us if, if people don't know kind of what that world is and what, what that is for uh, the stories to come out of? Yeah, it's a uh, age-old sci-fi premise. A comet comes streaking through the solar system. We spin through the debris field as a planet. It introduces new matter, new elements that upend the laws of physics and geology and biology and upset the geopolitical theater and... Um, creates a new dawn of heroes and villains in a way, you know, and I wanted to build my own shared universe because as much fun as it is to write for Marvel and write for DC, you know, these characters don't belong to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I wanted to, to build my own shared universe and also draw from what I've learned from comics, but draw from what I've learned from other novels that essentially have their own shared universe as well. Um, and I could be talking about Louise Erdrich or, or William Faulkner doesn't have to be a speculative story you know the way in which they have these geographies and they have these families over many generations that they're touching upon cycles of novels or families of novels or bestiary of novels or however you want to think of it so all of my books take place in the comet cycle at the exact same time in different parts of the world okay. and so you don't have to read them in order interesting uh, you oh. can read book two before you read book one you can read book three before you read book two and I'm trying to fight attrition with that because typically every book in a series sells fewer copies, make it more accessible. Um, but also just, it's the same sort of mindset that informs like, okay, here's Batman, here's Wonder Woman, here's Superman. They're all in the same universe. Mm -hmm. You'll get more out of it if you read all of them, but they can also be read singularly as capsules. That's interesting. That's cool. Yeah, it just gives opportunity to, to dive in if, if something catches your eye or, or, you know, later on, if you only heard about the third one, but it, it doesn't prevent you from engaging in this world, yeah. but opens up, oh, hey, there's these other stories that happen in this world that build the richness of it out further. That's great. Yeah. Also gives you, I feel like it gives you as a writer so much more to play with that you could, you could come back and just tell from another perspective and another yep. perspective yep. and another perspective. I can keep I, I could keep going for six, nine, 12 books. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see how many people get on board. That's cool. Oh, wow. What a wonderful time we've had talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for bullshitting with me. Oh, yeah. Wow. This is literally this is anytime. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to the 10, the, the Wolverines across yeah. the next 10 weeks. We're really excited about that. Yeah. Definitely going to check out the Comet Cycle as well. Yeah. Thank sure. you. Thank you. Yeah. Any comics fans out there, I really appreciate it when they take the dive and check out some of my pros as well. For sure. Well, 
Well, is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners before we let you go? No, just uh, thanks to you too. And thanks to everybody else who's been picking up the books. It means a lot to me. Amazing. Well, we appreciate you so much. We've had so much fun. And until next time, old friend. Charles! Thanks so much for joining us today on the Ex-Wife Podcast. Be sure to leave us a review and tell your friends. The Ex-Wife Podcast is produced in Providence, Rhode Island by Alicia and Justin. Our music is by Quan. <laughs>